Um, I don't know if any of you saw the show that was on a few years ago called Fear Factor. Did anybody watch that show? Okay. All right. A lot of you watched that, and it's a pretty crazy show. I never actually saw an episode, but I saw like some outtakes where people had bowls of centipedes and were eating them. Um, I read of one of the Fear Factor moments where they had to bob for some kind of object in, um, I'm sorry to tell you, but it was a container of cow's blood. So they had to stick their face down in, kind of like bobbing for apples, but it was bobbing for something and it was cow's blood. There was another one where they were asked to sit in a, like a bathtub full of snakes. Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly right. Uh, and, and, and so that basically the point of this show was something that would either absolutely be the worst thing you could imagine or the grossest thing that you could imagine. And you were kind of immersed in that. In order for us to understand the incarnation, we have to understand that when Christ came and when Christ was placed in Mary's womb, the conception took place by the power of the Holy Spirit, that Christ was entering a realm so distinctly different from His nature, character, and the surroundings that He has enjoyed for all of eternity that there is no fear factor way that we can see the offensiveness of human sin and sinfulness and sinners that Jesus immersed Himself into in the Incarnation. There is no possible parallel that the grossest, most offensive, most fearful thing that you could ever imagine being immersed into, being exposed to, being made a part of, could ever compare with how incredibly, incredibly shocking it would be for God to take on human skin and to do what John 1 says, to dwell among us. This morning I have a very difficult task ahead of me because I need to follow a thread through the book of Hebrews that's a little bit complex. I'm going to break the thread into two parts. One is the following of the thread of Jesus' suffering that led to the Scriptures saying that through that suffering He was perfected. And then the following of the thread of Jesus' perfection through the book of Hebrews. And this is a little complex, so if you'll join me with your outline. Robin, click up and just click one into the next slide one more time. We see the beauty of the baby in the manger, but against that, one more click, Robin, slowly will fade in the backdrop if you can see of his crucified hand. Jesus at the cradle was planning and a part of something that was going to bring about immense suffering and death. When I was growing up and studying the book of Hebrews, I found it almost impossible and it scared me because every time I tried to read through it, I would get kind of boggled into questions about can you lose your salvation and who is Melchizedek and all kinds of other things. But as I have been studying through and really taking time to look at the work 
I've shared with you the three main emphases that I've seen in the book that are clear. First, that Jesus is worthy of worship as a better Savior because of who He is. Second, that Jesus is worthy of being trusted as and for a better salvation because of what He has done. And third, that Jesus is worthy of being enduringly hoped in for a better situation because of where He is taking us. Now the story of those three things comes together in the incarnation and how in the incarnation in the book of Hebrews, the key word spoken of is the word suffering. So join me. First, in Hebrews chapter 2, if you remember from the outline, the headings and the text that Steve read in chapter 2, come with me to verse 10. And then we'll pull our outline up and go with the very first point. The suffering of Jesus. The suffering of incarnation at conception. So Robin, if you'll pull that up for us. Hebrews 2, chapter 10, uh, verse 10. For it was fitting for Him, this is a reference to God, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. Now, you and I know if we have a good understanding of Christ and His divinity, that there was no lack of perfection in Jesus prior to the Incarnation. Jesus was already perfect. His character, His holiness, His goodness, His divinity, all was absolutely, totally, completely, unequivocally perfect. So when we hit a text that says to perfect Him through suffering, we run into a little roadblock there and we have to think for a minute. Now, that concept continues on in chapter 5. So if you'll come over there. Suffering and perfection are again joined together here. Verse 7, in the days of Jesus' flesh. He offered up both prayers and supplication with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect. So here are two times where the Scripture tells us that through suffering, Jesus was made perfect. So what does that mean? That's the first trail that we have to follow so that we understand how the writer to the Hebrews is going to offer something to us at the end of the book that we desperately need. So we have to clarify what does he mean 
by suffering leading to his perfection. Well, first, number one, the suffering of the incarnation at conception. In order for Jesus to be qualified as someone who could die for us, he actually first has to enter a real, living, human body. I shared with you two Sundays ago how it was necessary for the incarnation so that Jesus could die for us. It was also necessary at the incarnation for Jesus to live for us, to live among us, and to experience real humanity. He had to take on real flesh and blood and have a real, genuine human experience. The suffering of the incarnation at conception meant his immersion into the darkness of the human experience. He was immersed in hunger. As God, he did not need to eat. As man, he knew what it was like to be hungry. To thirst. As God, he would never need anything that he made to support him food or water, but as man, he would know on a long journey by a well what it was to thirst. He would know what it would be like to be weary. The Bible says that our God never grows weary. He never sleeps. But Jesus in His human body would have to take a nap. He would have to go to sleep at night. He would know what it was like to work late into the night and be stressed by it, and still to rise early the next morning and go and pray to his Father that he would be dependent on. He would know what desire was. God is free from being drawn in any desire. He would know what human emotions felt like. The Bible tells us that by entering a human body, Jesus actually became temptable when we're told by James, that God cannot be tempted. So over and over again, in the human experience, Jesus, temptable, immersed, He becomes touchable. The King James Version, in describing to us the words in chapter 4 of Hebrews, says that we do not have a high priest who cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmity. Jesus became touchable by the things that touch us. The death of a friend. The rejection of a disciple. The alienation of a religious group. In taking on flesh and the incarnation at conception, Jesus became temptable when God cannot be tempted. Touchable when God cannot be touched. Teachable when God needs no one to instruct Him. Dependent when God is dependent upon nothing. Tangible when no man can even behold God without dying. 1 John tells us that they handled Jesus with their hands. They found Him tangible, holdable, The Bible says that 
He became human and shared in our weakness. So that Paul in 2 Corinthians 13.4 said He was crucified because of or in His weakness. So when we have the Incarnation, the Incarnation is Jesus becoming sufferable. And here begins the process that the writer to the Hebrews will lay out in what made Him perfect. Number two, Jesus' suffering was life under the law and its intent. Every moment of every day of Jesus' life, He lived fully under the yoke of the law that no man, no woman had ever successfully achieved under. For every other man, woman, boy, and girl ever born under and living under the law, the law could only condemn them. But for Jesus, it could confirm Him as perfect. Not only did He live under the restraints of the law, and if you've read its regulations, you know that no human can over and over again, all of the intent of the law is not just its rules and structure, but Jesus met the underlying idea that in every moment of every day, not only did He obey the structure of the law, Jesus obeyed its intent. What were the two intents of the law that Jesus said were the two chief commands? First, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Every moment of every day, Jesus Christ perfectly loved not only the law and its structure, but the God who wrote it and its intent. And so He fulfilled the intent of the law, not just by obeying its rules and structure, but by obeying its intent for us to love God. But what was the second? To love your neighbor as yourself. Here was Jesus, friend of sinners. In every moment, in every act that Jesus ever did, He operated for the eternal good of every human He ever came in contact with. He loved them to the uttermost. Jesus loved the Lord God with all His heart, soul, mind, and strength. And He loved His neighbor as Himself. Third, Jesus suffered under the rejection of holiness and truth. I don't know if you remember going to school. Some of us are starting to get distant from those years and the memories begin to grow a little more faint. But nobody likes the guy in class that ruins the curve. They're called the goody two-shoes and the smarty pants. They're the ones who gets everything right. Some of you were that, and some of you hated that. And some of you hated that you were that. When I was in college, in chemistry, taking chemistry under Dr. Davis, who was incredibly strict, and his organic chemistry class was a mind-blower We had a man in our class by the name of Jim Kuhn. 
And Jim blew the curve by making a hundred or more on every single exam. By the way, Jim is now a successful doctor in Georgia, having graduated at the top of his class and going on to medical school and doing wonderfully. He's doing great, and he ruined our curve. Nobody likes the guy that ruins the curve. Nobody likes the feeling when somebody gets near them and that person's own holiness begins to encroach on our unholiness and conviction begins to sit in in our heart because the person we're with is walking with God in such a way that deeply convicts us. Often we will insult or we will push away. Jesus lived under the rejection that at all times He was perfect holiness and at all times He spoke perfect truth. And remember, as humans, we don't like either in the base of our being. This is why the Pharisees hated Him. It's why the political systems scorned Him. It's why often He would be the mockery and the insult on people's mouths. And so He was rejected for His holiness and truth as He suffered wanting to love and being given hatred in return. Number four, the the suffering of bearing sin and sorrow and condemnation. When you read through Isaiah 53, it is a beautiful and explicit picture of Christ's suffering. And one of the pictures there is the picture of Him bearing our sin as a lamb that goes to slaughter. He's silent. Why is the lamb silent? Because when Jesus was being slaughtered, He could not answer in His defense because He was not at the slaughterhouse for Himself. He was at the slaughterhouse for us. And so He could give no answer Because He was answering for us and we have no excuse. And so as Jesus was going through the suffering of bearing our sin and sorrow and condemnation, He was unable to give answer because of the immensity of our sin. And it was upon Him and He stood condemned on our behalf. And so His suffering begins at the Incarnation. It walks through His life in every facet and aspect and culminates, number five, in the suffering of the wrath of God against sin and sinners through pain, anguish, sorrows, piercing, and death. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 2, there is a summary of that. If you will look in verse 9. Hebrews, and then we'll close out this idea of suffering. But we do see Him who has been made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death. This is the culmination of all of His sufferings. God cannot be tempted. God cannot be touched. God cannot be taught. God cannot be dependent. God cannot be weak. But in the incarnation, God is temptable, touchable, teachable, tangible. He is dependent. He is weak. But God cannot die. And only by literally 
genuinely entering a human body, can God know what it is like to die? And in Christ, He does. In the suffering of the wrath of God against sin and sinners through pain, anguish, sorrows, piercings, and death, something happens. Jesus is qualified as perfect. You see, He was perfect as God. But God could not do for us what we needed without becoming one of us. The incarnation was an absolute necessity. And so as God becomes one of us, temptable, touchable, teachable, tangible, weak, and killable, sufferable, the Bible says that Christ as God in flesh in the incarnation is qualified to do The one thing you need. Now we need to jump to the second part and see why that matters to us. So let's move to the next. Yeah, thank you, Robin. This section is about the relationship between suffering and perfection and why this is even an issue for us. So we begin, number one, the perfection of Jesus Christ through suffering. You and I are in a pinch. We're in a bind. We're in a bad spot. When Adam, our forefather, and Eve, his wife, sinned, they were separated from God in such a way that He had to move them out of the garden and out of His presence for two reasons. One, they could not eat of the fruit of the tree of life in their sinful state. Why? Because to live forever in the sinful state we are in is the worst possible thing. To imagine the culmination of mankind growing more and more and more wicked, more and more and more abundant, and never dying, but always living, is to think of the Friday shooting as a warm-up to what we would suffer all of eternity as sinful humans who could not ever be taken out and redeemed. It would be... Horrendous, so much so that if you go back and study Genesis 3, you will find out that it is an incomplete sentence. That God says, lest they reach out and take and eat of the tree of life and live forever, and the sentence just trails off into, you don't want to know what's after that. It's unbearably bad. And so, Christ comes to us and we need someone to bridge the gap between us and God who is both a representative of God and a representative of man so that the distance can be closed between God and man and the relationship can be restored 
I said the first reason was because we don't want to live forever. The second is, is that God in His holiness must judge sin and sinners with eternal wrath and condemnation. And so if we stand before God without someone between us, all we can receive is eternal wrath and condemnation. Every cognitive human being, everyone who has received the knowledge of what is right and wrong, stand utterly condemned and rejected with no hope unless someone stands between them and God. And so the perfection of Christ is the perfection not simply of His glories before birth, before conception. It is the perfection that was required to be a substitute in life for you and I. We needed someone who could die for us, who had substituted for us, not in death, but in the requirements of life. Christ came and was perfect. And so two passages of Scripture are very important for us here. Chapter 2, verse 10. For it was fitting for Him from whom are all things, through whom are all things, and bringing many sons to glory. This is all of it coming together to perfect the author of their salvation through suffering. He through suffering, was qualified to deliver us, without which He would not be qualified. It's repeated again in chapter 5, verse 8, Although He was a Son, He learned obedience from the things which He suffered, and having been made perfect, He became to all those who obey Him the source of eternal salvation. He became that source. How? Through the suffering that led to His perfection, that led to the fact that He was qualified, listen carefully, to do something with that perfection. Now stop there. Okay, quickly we're going to weave through Hebrews. What is this whole perfection? The concept of perfection runs through Hebrews from chapter 2 to chapter 12. The first two instances and the Fourth instance are instances where it says Jesus, through suffering, was perfectly qualified to do something. This is important. Jesus, through suffering, was perfectly qualified to do something. He was perfectly qualified through the incarnation, through life under the law and its intent, through rejection, through holiness and truth, through being willing to bear sin and sorrow and to be willing to suffer the wrath. He was qualified. His perfection qualified him for something. Now, what happens in the book of Hebrews is it takes a turn after these three uses of the word perfect in relation to Jesus. It then turns and says, hey, you need to know something. Listen to what it says. Join me. And we're going to do some page flipping. 719. We're going to go from 7 through 12, quickly, with about five references. I would love if you would mark these. And when we get to the end, I think you'll see where we needed to go in the first place. 7.19 For the law made nothing perfect. Stop there. For the law made nothing perfect. Nothing. Okay. Now, join me. In 9.9. 9. 
the outer tabernacle still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. So here's perfection again. We got Jesus who is perfect. He's been made perfect. He's qualified. And now we find out the law can make nothing perfect. Now we find out that worship activity can make nothing perfect. Go to 10.1. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of the things, can never by the same sacrifices year by year, which they offer continually, make perfect those who draw near. So the law can't make anything perfect. Religion and religious activity can't make anything perfect. And sacrifices can't make anything perfect. We are told in chapter chapter 5, that verse 3, and because of this, the high priest is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins as for the people, so also for himself. So we find out the high priest can't make anything perfect because he's imperfect. He has to offer sacrifice for his own self. Okay, so here's what's happened. The writer to the Hebrews says that Jesus was made perfect through suffering. So he's qualified to do something. Then the writer to the Hebrews says, law, leaders, Moses, angels, high priest, and lambs. None of those can make you perfect. The law, doing it, can't make you perfect. It simply condemns you. The leaders, high priests, Moses, angels, other people, they're all imperfect. They do not meet the qualifications that Jesus met. Lambs, offered year by year, cannot cleanse the conscience. So where's he going? This is the beauty of the book. Come with me now to 1014, and then let's look at what happens. 10.14 For by one offering He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Hold your thought. 11 because God has provided something better for us so that apart from us they should not be made perfect 12.23 to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven the judge of all and to the spirits of righteous men made perfect something is at play here that is paramount to our rejoicing at Christmas. 
It is first the perfection of Jesus that qualifies him to do something. Second, it is the imperfection of us and every system, every act, every deed, and every way that we could be a part of by our own behavior and activity. No perfection. Lambs can't do it. Laws can't do it. Leaders can't do it. And certainly, the fact we need redemption tells us we can't do it. So what's up? There's a central idea I want to take you to. It's in chapter 10, and this will bring it all together. Let's walk from verse 1 to verse 5. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of the things, can never by the same sacrifices year by year, which they offer continually, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So two things he's already said. Law and lambs, not going to do it for you. He's already said the leaders had to offer one for themselves. They're not going to do it. So what does he say? And this is it. Verse 5. Therefore, when he comes into the world... This is the incarnation. This is an incarnation verse. If you want a big, giant incarnation verse to say, this is it, this is it. Therefore, when He comes into the world, He says, Sacrifices and offering thou hast not desired, but a body thou hast prepared for me. What is He saying? He's saying, that there is no salvation or redemption in any lambs slaughtered, any laws given, and any leader's ability. There is only salvation in one who by living in a human body was prepared for this unique service of giving His perfection as a gift to you. The gift of the incarnation is the gift of the perfection of Jesus Christ to everyone who believes. It is the one requirement that you, that I, through laws with leaders and lambs, can never attain. That Jesus through His body. And so now, He begins to hash that out. Look in the next verses and we close. After saying the above, verse 8, Sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings for sin thou hast not desired, nor hast thou taken pleasure of them. Listen, God is not some fruit loop who's up there going, Man, I just love it when you slaughter the stuff that I make. Bring me more. He's not like that. The whole sacrificial system was not for Him. It was for us. 
It was so that we could see that we needed a perfect substitute. When they had the law, the law said, you go get a lamb, one that is spotless, blameless. Don't bring the sick. Don't bring the lame. Because only the perfect, spotless one will be suitable. And that was all object lessons of our imperfection that one day somebody who's called the Lamb of God would come and they would be perfect. And their body would give you perfection you can never have. And so what does He do? He then said, Behold, I have come to do Thy will. He takes away the first, that is the law, in order to establish the second, that is faith. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. This is the incarnation. This is why. In the suffering He was qualified for a perfection that none of us have. And in the death, the payment was had. In the resurrection, the Father in heaven recognized the work as being sufficient, complete, raised Him from the dead, and offered to every one of us who will believe the Gospel this Christmas gift. Perfection. The righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed, credited, and imparted to our account before God We stand accepted in Him. He finishes it by saying, verse 12, But He, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all times, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting at that time onward until His enemies be made a footstool for His feet. For by one offering He has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. So we go to the third point and we close. The perfection which comes to us through Christ by faith. Please hear this. Your chance, your opportunity, your ability to enter heaven is tied to this one gospel truth. Jesus Christ, God incarnate, The Creator took on creation, suffered as creation, through that suffering was qualified to be offered as a perfect offering, a human body perfect. By that offering, perfection was met in every conceivable way. God accepted it, raised His Son from the dead, showed Him to His disciples, brought Him to sit at His right hand, and conveys this to you today. If you will believe this Gospel, the perfection of Jesus Christ, the forgiveness that goes with it, the acceptance that God commends to us through it, that we are accepted in Him, will be given to you as an absolutely free gift. If you are counting on going to heaven by any other means, you are doomed. But if you trust Christ through His work, you are made perfect. Because what He has is given to you. Merry Christmas. Bow with me.